0: Alright, Hebrews chapter 6 this morning, if you would stand just one more time and we'll read our text. In your bulletin you have uh, the title of the sermon, I have changed it if you're going to take notes. It's not a biblical hypothetical, but rather the test of reality. The test of reality. Hebrews chapter 6, let's read verse 4 through 8. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame." For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it and bringeth forth herbs meet for them by whom it is dressed receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing whose end is to be burned. Let's pray. Father, I ask again that You would bless our time together around Your Word, Lord, as we uh, fellowship um, Around your word through the preaching father i pray that you would um, exhort your people i pray you would admonish where that is necessary and god i pray that our faith would be strengthened um, for the days ahead we praise you we thank you in the name of jesus amen well for the last several weeks we were looking at hebrews chapter 6 verse 1 through 3 in laying a firm foundation um, and we, were, we saw that to move on to perfection or to move on to spiritual maturity, you must have a firm foundation laid. And we looked at primarily three doctrines. One, it was the doctrine of salvation. What do we believe about the gospel? What do we believe uh, about um, salvation? And we saw uh, that it was, uh, there, there were two parts of that. That there was repentance from dead works, meaning those works that are not profitable, those works that are not done in faith and faith towards God and trust in Him. And then we talked about the doctrine of the church and that we saw, we answered the question, who we baptize, why we baptize, and who do we ordain and, and for the same purposes. And then we tied that up with, uh, last week we ended that with the resurrection and eternal judgment, our in, our, our belief uh, of the coming of Christ. And I, I, it was interesting to me as I looked at that 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 was the two things that was said about our end time. It didn't go into detail about the Antichrist, didn't go into detail about anything other than there is a resurrection that's going to take place and there is eternal judgment. Now that's two things that, we, that, that every view of, of end times can agree on, that there has to be a resurrection from those who, who have died to be raised to, to eternal life, as the Scripture says, or those who have died that will be raised to eternal death and damnation. And so we saw the importance of laying a solid foundation to be able to advance into faith, to be able to mature as Christians. But we also saw as well in verse 3 that it can, it, it's dependent upon God as well, right? We could get all this thing straightened out. We could get it all, you know, have our, our theological T's crossed and our, our doctrinal I's dotted and have that thing all figured out. But if God doesn't permit us to move on, all it is is the head knowledge That has no effect on us. So now we move on to verses 4 through 8, and this is a passage that has caused no small controversy in the church. It's caused no small controversy, and what I mean, it's actually caused quite a bit of a stir between those who would say, hey, you can lose your salvation, and between those that would say, no, God preserves us all the way to the very end. And so what we will see is, is that very thing that God does pr- preserve us. Now, I would remind you that in chapters 2, chapters 3, and chapters 4, and 5 as well, that we've seen warnings about unbelief and apostatizing or falling away from the faith. And this is a continuation of that. There are primarily four views about this passage. Now, if one would read that, you would automatically think, well, wait a minute. I can lose my salvation? If you didn't have any understanding of any other scripture, that would probably be a question that would come into your mind that, wait a minute, God's an Indian giver? That He gives faith to believe the gospel and then He takes it back when I don't do what what He beckons me to do? How how does that thing even work? Well, the first view of this passage is, is just what I mentioned, that genuine Christians can fall away. They can lose their salvation. And I would ask... What hope is there in that? What hope is there that you've been rescued from eternal damnation only to know that you could lose it again? If you don't follow these, these, these certain rules and whatnot, really and truly, if that were a possibility, if that could happen, you know what it would do? It would make God a liar. It would matter of fact, it would, it would prove that God is not what He says He is. Now we see and we know that God is faithful. God is faithful to keep His His end of the bargain or His end of the covenant. We see this in John 6, 35-40 when Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me and I will lose none. You see, our salvation, like our security in Christ, is wrapped up in the work of God. That faith is a gift given by God for the purpose of believing in Christ, and that is kept by Him. Now, that doesn't relieve us of any responsibility to follow Him in obedience. As a matter of fact, that is our responsibility, that when we see the work that God has done within us, that we follow Him in obedience. The second view is that there was a Judaizing heresy that was so serious that to embrace that heresy... Would be to lose would would cause you to lose all hope of salvation. Now, I couldn't find exactly what this heresy was, but it is understand it is a possibility. Now, the third view of this passage, and I think this is probably where a lot of people tend to to fall, is that it's a hypothetical, meaning that if it were possible for one to lose their salvation, it would be a permanent falling. There would be no retrieval from that. There would be no retrieval back to repentance. The fourth view is that apostates who appeared to produce fruit of repentance um, have fallen away. That that there were people within the church who gave this evidence, maybe, of, uh, of repentance and of faith towards God that when the fires of tribulation came, they fell away. But I want to offer maybe a fifth view of that. And, and I don't... It was just something that came to me with all the studying and whatnot, and actually, it's kind of mentioned in some of these other views. But it's a warning to constantly check yourself. It's a warning to constantly examine your heart to see if you are in the faith. I never make the assumption that everyone I get to preach to week in and week out is a Christian. You say, "Well, Brian, why do you say something like that?" I mean, it's a virtual impossibility. Um, for 100 percent of the people within a church to be born again, the reality is that we have Christianized, so to speak, America in thinking that if you follow this prescription, then you're a Christian. And usually, it falls under being a, a you know politically conservative and, and things of that nature. What we've got really, what we we've done, is made Christianity something that it's not. Now, I wouldn't want anyone to think that because you're a conservative that you're going to go to heaven. That's not a reality at all. That has nothing to do with faith in Christ, right? So that's what we're talking about. Now, we've seen these warnings in Hebrews 2.14 and chapter 3 and other places. Understand, though, this warning that we're looking at, at, part of this warning, is a call to those who profess to have faith to put forth evidence of that faith. You know, what we've done in the Christian church is said, hey, if you pray this prayer, you're good to go. You've got your fire insurance. You've got your get-out-of-hell-free card. And the reality is that we don't call people to say, hey, live a life consistent with the profession that you were now giving. And so what we've done is said, well, we've got this... We, we've, made, we've come up with this doctrine that once saved, always saved, meaning that you prayed this prayer, now you're good to go. And we've not examined the Scripture to see what the Scripture has to say about the perseverance of the saints and the putting forth evidence of, of the fruit of our salvation. Now, I want to address two groups here this morning. The first group would be those who profess faith, but show no evidence. It is possible to profess faith in Christ and to come to church and that be the only evidence that you give as to being a Christian. Now, you say, and I know what what some people would say, well, don't judge me. You can't judge me. Well, actually, the Bible says we can judge. And we are to judge with the same judgment that we would want someone to judge us. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself said, you will know them by their what? Their fruit. I use this example quite a bit that, how do you know an orange tree is an orange tree? Produces orange. We're getting ready to plant gardens here, right? How do you know, now I know you can look at a tomato plant and tell it's a tomato plant, right? But how do you actually know for a fact that it's a tomato plant? It produces tomatoes. Same thing with squash, same thing with okra. You can look at something, it could give the appearance that it is that whatever plant, but only until it bears fruit do you have assurance of that. And that's the same thing with Christianity. One can profess to be um, a Christian. One can be professed to have been born again. But if they never offer any evidence, what assurance does the church have? What assurance do they have if they're not bearing fruit <clears throat> Excuse me, in their own life? So that's the first group that I want to address is that um, that you quit playing church. Quit playing with your eternal destiny. Repent from your fake Christianity. You say, Brother Brian, that sounds kind of harsh. That's, that's the words of Jesus. Repent and believe the gospel. But the second group that I want to address this morning is those that bear fruit worthy of repentance, as John said. And the warning would be, beware. Beware lest you fall into unbelief and you apostatize from the faith and God chasten you. So let's notice our text. Look at verse 4. We have, in verse 4 and 5, the appearance of saving faith. And I'm going to be addressing these two groups that I just mentioned. Notice verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good Word of God and the powers of the world to come. There's an appearance of saving faith. I've grown up in church my whole life. I gave at one time an appearance of saving faith. I gave a profession of faith. all the meanwhile, I was, un- I was not a believer. I was unregenerate as the drunk on the corner. And so we have evidence of a regenerated or a regeneration that gives evidence um, by obedience. The truth is is that if you go to a church and you sit there long enough, you will learn the things to say. You will learn the things to do. You will learn how to dress. You will learn what Bible to carry. You will learn when to say amen to the preacher. Right? You will learn all. You will learn the songs to sing so that you can sing them without a songbook. You may even learn to give a profession of faith. But a profession, folks, understand me, a profession does not a Christian make. Understand that we, we must produce fruit of what we say that we are and so the picture that we have here is someone who has been born again. Someone who has been born again. The word enlightened if you'll notice in verse 4 uh, is talking about a knowledge of God that has been disclosed in the gospel message. There is a knowledge of God that when we preach the gospel that we are giving that we're giving a knowledge of God, but however everyone who hears the gospel does not believe the gospel. Right? Everyone who hears that gospel message does not respond in faith to that gospel message. So we have two kinds of revelation. One, there is general revelation. That is that you can go outside, and you can look at nature, you can look at creation, and you can come to the conclusion that someone mightier than you put this stuff into being. That is the, that, that is the revelation that has been put within us. matter of fact, John nine says that every man has that light. We have the knowledge of God that there there is a God that has created this. There is a knowledge. As a matter of fact, Romans 1 speaks to that. Go to Romans 1, if you will. By the way, the Bible doesn't speak of atheists. It speaks of people who deny God. And I don't, I mean, according to the scripture, someone who tells me they're an atheist, they're lying. Because God says that we have His His law written in our heart. We have in our conscience that, that He bears on our conscience. Look at Romans 1, verse 20. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. What evidence do we have that God exists? We've got the Earth. We've got trees that are starting to bud. We've got gardens that are starting to bring forth um, a crop. We can look at this universe. I mean, go outside at night and you look at all the stars. You see evidence that God has created this. Notice verse twenty-one. I'm sorry, the end of verse 20, so that they are without excuse. No man on judgment day is going to be able to stand before God and say, hey, I didn't know. He's going to say, oh, yes, you did. i put it on your heart. Look at verse 21. Because that which, when they knew God, that's not talking about knowing Him in a saving way. That's talking about having a knowledge of Him. They glorified Him not as God. Neither were thankful. Isn't it amazing that unthankfulness goes along with ungodliness? Unthankfulness goes along with God-deniers. Unthankfulness goes along with people who hate and despise God and His people. So they weren't thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. The wisdom of this world is actually foolishness. In verse 23, And change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. What happens when you deny the knowledge of God that exists within you? You begin to make idols of God's creation and of your own making so that you worship that. And what you're actually worshiping is the creation of your own hands rather than the creation of... Of Almighty God. So, in a sense, everyone has been enlightened in a general sense, but not everyone has been enlightened with the special revelation that comes by God's Spirit. When I uh, was in the process of becoming the pastor at Harvest Bible Church in Pampa, I was given some documents to fill out, and it was essentially you know, explain the Trinity, what do you believe about baptism, things of that nature. Well, one of the questions on that questionnaire was, can someone be saved apart from hearing the gospel? And we would say, well, maybe. If they understand there's a God that put all this into being, maybe God, I mean, God is all powerful, right? God can do what God wants to do. But that, we see in Scripture, that faith comes through hearing. We see in John 3.3 3, that except a man be born again, he cannot see or comprehend the, the, the kingdom of God. In other words, if God, as we saw in Ezekiel 36, does not take His heart of stone and, and put a heart of flesh and put His Spirit within Him, He will not come to Christ up on, on His own. Where we see that a, that special revelation that comes by God's Spirit is the new birth. It is to be born again. I find it odd when people try to make the distinction between a Christian and a born-again Christian. It's like you're almost a Christian or you're really a Christian. No, there's only one type of Christian. And that is one that has been born again. One that has been born by the Spirit of God. But the, the, the appearance of saving faith, it's, it's, they, they give this idea that they have been regenerated or they have been saved. And, and it's seen by several things. Notice the next thing in verse 4. They were once enlightened, but they've tasted of the heavenly gift. What exactly is that? Well, there's an allusion here to partaking in the Lord's Supper. Now, I don't want to say there's something mysterious that happens when we take the Lord's Supper, but there ought to be something special. As you contemplate what God has done in Christ especially for those of us that have been born again, that we would contemplate what God has done, that He poured His wrath for my sin on His Son. And that I now stand righteous, stand justified because of Christ. Next, we see, not only have they tasted of the heavenly gift, but were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. That, that has to do with companionship, with fellowship, with partnership. What, what is that? That they've experienced the, the, the community of believers in the church as you exercise your spiritual gift to serve each other. As we exercise our gifts that God has given us to serve each other, we're taking part together for the sake of the gospel. We all play a part in this ministry. But next, notice... It says that they've tasted the good Word of God. You've tasted the benefit of the Word of God through the preaching and through teaching, but also through obedience and through personal devotion. You see, there's this evidence of faith that's being put forth. Now, here's the thing. You've got genuine believers of Christ, those who've been born again, that, that, that are uh, working out their own salvation with fear and trembling and they're giving that evidence. They're constantly searching themselves to, to make full proof of their salvation. And then you've got this other group that's just kind of going along with the motion. They're, they're watching other people. They're seeing what people are doing and they say, oh, I need to make myself a little bit better. I, I need to do this. I, I need to do that. All in all, when trials come... The test of reality for anyone who, give, who is giving this appearance of faith is when trials come in your life. Do you abandon the faith or do you hunker down and keep moving on? You see, the ultimate test of reality for a Christian is our faith, is our faith going to stand when trials come our way? Notice what he says in verse 5 Not only have they tasted of the good word of God, And look, this tasted of the good Word of God speaks to being doers of the Word, not hearers only. It speaks to hearing the Word, receiving the Word, searching the Word. It speaks to being able to give an answer for that hope that is within you. That you've tasted and you've seen the benefit and the profit of obeying God's Word. And even have experienced the supernatural working of God. Notice at the end of verse 5 and the powers of the world to come. Now, consider what was going on in this day. That many of these people had seen the the, the apostles that, that produced, that they were healing people. They were doing miracles. They were speaking in tongues of that nature. And they saw that supernatural power of God worked out that way as the church was marching forward. The sign gifts, though, however, are gone. There's no need for those things anymore because we have the Word of God. But do you know God still works supernaturally? Do, do you know God still works wonders among us? I give evidence, right, right, we have people who have had COVID, that by all of the statistics and everything, should have died. But God, in His mercy, healed each and every one. God, in His supernatural power, has healed those people for which we, we, we rejoice. So we know that He heals the sick. And, and look, many of us could stand and testify to, to God working and healing in people. But you know, I believe the greatest display of God's power was not when He spoke this world into being. It was not, or is not, when He heals someone. But it is when He takes one, one who has hated Him, and despised Him, and been at enmity with Him for this person's whole life, and he, he, he takes that heart of stone and He puts that heart of flesh and He puts His Spirit within Him. He causes that person to follow Him. He causes that person to love Him. He causes that person to worship Him. The greatest display of God's power is when He puts His Spirit within someone who once hated Him. When He brings someone to salvation by His all-sovereign hand. So we have here what we're explaining, this evidence, this appearance, really could be seen in the parable of the sower as well. That you've got seed that falls on various types of ground. right? You hear the gospel seed, the gospel is preached, and it falls on, on various sorts of ground. It's, it falls on rock. Sun comes up, burns it up, what happens? It didn't, take no, it didn't have root. It falls on some ground, it takes root, the, the thorns and thistles and things choke it out. That's the cares of this world, the cares of this life. But then there's seed that falls in, in, in ground that is, that, that is ready for that, and, and it gives life to that. And that is those who have give evidence or give evidence of their salvation. And then we see, in verse six, an illusion of loss. So we have two people, two sets of people, two groups of people that give evidence or an appearance of saving faith. But then there's also, uh, that comes along with that, an illusion of loss for some. Now, ultimately, the one who is not in Christ, the one who has not been born again, when he falls away, it's to his doom. And even for the one who is in Christ, if they fall away without repenting, Do we know that God chastens His own? Do we know that God disciplines His own children? And look, and and when it talks about at the end there uh, that they put Him to an open shame, God, you understand it. God will sanctify His own name. God will glorify His own name, and if it means that He has to take the life of one of His own to keep them from shaming Him, then He will do that. But we have this illusion, uh, illusion of loss. Look at verse six: If they shall fall away, the word "fall away." is an abandonment of the, of the gospel. It's an abandonment of sound biblical truth. It's an aban- abandonment of biblical doctrine. Now, in the case of an unbeliever, that would be expected that when trials come, when tribulations come, that they would abandon the gospel. They would abandon what they once professed. And so this leads us to ask this question. Can a genuine Christian fall away? Can someone who is genuinely be born again, can they fall away from the faith? And when I say fall away, I don't mean to lose their salvation. I mean, can they, we would use the word backslide. Well, that's absolutely, yeah. There are people in the church right now, not specific to Valley View, but there are people in the church right now who attend church every week, yet they have fallen away. That They have been guilty of the sin of unbelief. And so, the answer is absolutely they can. For a time, they can fall away. For a time, matter of fact, excuse me. Second Peter one says that we're to add our faith, virtue to virtue, knowledge, so on and so forth. It says if we do not do these things, then that man can forget that he was purged from his old sin. You see, a believer can get to a point that they even forgot that God has forgiven them. That's and that they're getting to the point where they're bringing open shame upon the name of Christ. This is why we must heed the warnings to don't be guilty of the sin of unbelief to the point that we apostatize. Now, can we know then if someone is a believer? And I've kind of answered this question already. Yes, absolutely. By their fruit you will know them. Jesus said that they will know you're my disciples if you have love one to another. How is it that someone can come in this church and realize there's something different about it? Our love for one another, our mutual love, that we have genuine love and care for each other, not that we're just tolerating each other. You ever looked at a marriage and you know that man, that couple loves each other. They have a fondness for one another. They have an appreciation for one another. They have a love for one another. Now you you can tell, right? They're they're giving evidence. But there's also that couple that just kind of puts up with each other. They kind of tolerate each other. And that's evidence, right? It's the same thing with God's people, folks. Lost people know when there's something different about a church. Saved people know when they come to a new church that there's something different about that church, that God's people have genuine love for one another. That's one of the reasons I love Colossians so much. Right off the bat, in chapter 1, within the first few verses... Paul commends the Colossian Christians for not only for their world-renowned faith, if you will, but their love for the brethren. That they had a mutual respect and mutual love for one another in Christ. So can we know if someone is a believer? Absolutely. Yeah, by the fruit that they bear. Jesus talks about that in Matthew 7. Now, with the same idea in mind, can we know if someone is an unbeliever? Is there signs of unbelief in someone? And the answer is absolutely. Well, we have Judas is carried as an example. And look, he didn't go to hell because he committed suicide. Don't, don't make the mistake in believing that. Judas went to hell because he was not one of God's. He was a child of perdition. He was a son of the devil. Now, what is the sign of an unbeliever? They fall away permanently. First John, What does First John 2.10 2, say? They went out from us because they were not of us. Why would people leave the church and not why would people leave a church and not go to church anywhere? And not see any kind of uh, any kind of indication of God's hand upon them in discipline. Because they were never a child of God. You see, we look around, we I remember the, the church I pastored in, 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 in Louisiana. I got to looking at the church role one day, and it was a church about this size. There was over 400 people on the road. And I started asking, where are they? Some had moved off. Some had died. Much of them, most of them, had quit going to church. We sent letters out and didn't get any response, but I started finding out that some of them didn't even go to church anymore. How can they, be, how can they profess to be a Christian and not be a part of a local church? This leads to the continuing, well, they fall away permanently, but another fruit or another sign of an unbeliever is that they continue to sin willfully and deliberately. But impunity, they just sin. They do what they've always done before, which leads to a hardening of their own heart, which leads to making repentance impossible. In other words, they do what Romans says and they, they become a reprobate. So to the Christian who falls away, let me say this again. Beware. Beware lest you fall into the sin of unbelief and apostatize from the faith. There is, however, a kind of falling away that is irreversible if you'll turn to 1 John chapter 5 and this is what we are to be aware of. 1 John chapter 5. Look at verse 16. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death, I do not say that he shall pray for it. Now, I don't know exactly what that sin unto death is, but I do know this, and as I said a moment ago, God will sanctify His name. And we can be sure of that. So we need to be aware. But we also need... To understand that salvation is permanent. It's not something that we can send away. It's not something that God, when He gets angry at us, takes it back. Right? We, we got our kids. that when, they, when, when we had kids at home, we would punish them by taking toys from them. Now, we would give that toy as a gift, right? For, for whatever reason. For the goodness of our heart or our love for them. But when they disobeyed us, we took that toy back, right? God doesn't do that with our salvation. God doesn't take that salvation back because... We didn't do the right thing or we did't, but he does, however, um, chasten us when we do sin. Understand the prodigal son is a picture not of salvation, but of one who has returned from falling away, that he returned to the Father of after having left, has returned, not that he got saved again, but that God worked repentance in him. And then lastly, look at verse seven and eight. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs meet for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. Now, the first time I read through that, I was like, man, that is an odd place for that passage to be there. It just seems like it doesn't fit with the thought that, that, that is there. But this actually does fit quite well with the thought. And this would be an address to those who are truly born again. We can have confidence in the sovereign Lord to complete the work Which he began in us. Philippians 1 6. That it is God that works, uh, not that works, but he that began a good work will finish it. That he has given us his spirit and his word to sanctify us. And this is exactly what 7 and 8 is talking about. See, his word and his spirit produce faith as we see in Romans 10. How shall they hear, how shall they call on whom they've not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And then it goes on to say that faith. Cometh by hearing. See, outside of the gospel message, no one can be saved. Outside of the gospel message, no one will have faith. And so, it's the word of God mixed with the spirit of God, and it works to accomplish His will in us. And so, we see from from previous uh, verses, um, Isaiah, and other places, we we see that that the word is 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 given. Um, the idea of rain, the ground in this, in, in Isaiah five one through seven. If you want to write this down, is God's people. You read through that passage, you'll see what he's talking about. That the ground that it's talking about, this old testament Old Testament imagery that we have, the ground is God's people. We also see the rain falling on it is the word Isaiah fifty five. 8-11, through 11, I quote quite often that the Word will not return void as, as the rain and snow fall upon the earth and return it will not return void. But also of the Spirit that we see in Isaiah 44, verse 3 and 4. And then we see that the unproductive field is destroyed. You see, God works in His people through His Word and through His Spirit. And, and, and as the fig tree that didn't produce fruit, God cursed it. And so, those who profess to know Christ and are not really in Christ have no fruit, and they are just like the ground that is cursed by God. So, this divine reality is that we have we can have confidence that God salvation starts with God, is inaugurated by God, and it ends with God. Now, our responsibility is to follow Him in obedience. And his word and his spirit work through us. This we see in this, in this passage here in verse seven and eight, the twofold effect of the gospel. That the gospel is a savor of life unto life and a savour of death unto death. In other words, it brings life to some and it will condemn others. It will be people the, the people that reject the gospel, it will be judgment against them. We can expect, though, that true saving faith to be tested. And this is the whole, this is kind of drawing the net on this thing. That those who have faith, those who have real, genuine, God-given faith, you can expect that faith to be tested by trials. Turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 gives us the proper response to trials, to tribulation. My brother, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations or temptations of various kinds, different kinds of temptations, meaning testings. When your faith is tested, the proper response is what? Joy. Why? Because God's testing you. To what end? Look at verse 3. Knowing this, this is what you can be assured of that the trying or the testing of your faith worketh. Patience. Now, this is the purpose of trials. It's to bring patience. And patience is endurance under pressure. Patience is perseverance for the Christian to the very end. How is it that I can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that I am one of God's own? It's that I persevere through the very end. It's that no matter what comes upon me, no matter the trials that come upon me, I stay faithful to God. Now, there are going to be times in those testings that our faith wavers. But the ones who have the God-given faith will endure to the very end. Patience leads to hope as, you, as we see that in 1 Thessalonians 1, 1.3. And what is that hope? That hope is that Jesus returns and that He catches us out of this mess. That we're enduring under trials, but the hope is that we won't suffer forever but that God will take us to heaven with Him. And so the purpose of trials is spiritual maturity. It's at the end there of James chapter 1 in verse 27, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep Himself unspotted from the world. What's well, a sign of spiritual maturity that you have kept yourself unspotted from the cares of this world as you have endured under trial? We have several examples of this, and I'll close with this. We have examples of people who endured under this great trial. Think about Joseph. Joseph, at that time, the youngest of his brothers, had the dream. Father gave him the coat of many colors. He goes to his brothers. And he said, and the brother said, here comes that dreamer. And what happened to Joseph? They took Joseph. They took his coat off of him. Got animal blood. Put animal blood on it. Put Joseph in a well. Sold him into slavery. Took the coat to their father. Deceived their father into thinking that Joseph had died by, by, at the hands, if you will, of some wild animal. Years later, there's a famine in the land. Uh, Joseph's father sends the, his, his sons to go get grain from Egypt. By that time, Joseph has arisen to what? Third in command in the country. And after a series of events, they find out who Joseph is. And they begin to fear. But you know what Joseph says? You meant it for evil. You meant what you done for evil, but God meant it for good. You say, wait a minute. God meant that trial And all those things that happened to Joseph... And think about, I'm giving you the short version of the story. Joseph was falsely accused of of trying to sleep with his boss's wife. Had to go in prison for a period of time. Um, Interpreted some dreams, got forgot about by one guy. And then the next guy remembered Joseph had interpreted that dream. And that's what leads him to rise to the position that he was in. God meant that for good. Folks, understand... God means our trials for good. They are for our benefit. They are for our profit. And they are to strengthen our faith. The Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians, he says, a messenger of Satan was sent to buffet me. I don't agree with some people that say it was blindness that he was struck with. I think it was something probably more heinous. I think it may have been some sort of spiritual sin that he suffered with. But nonetheless, he says that, the spirit, that, that this messenger of Satan was sent to buffet me. That's to attack me, to hit me, to strike with blows. You think about all the things that Paul suffered. Every, every hand, every time he turned around, he was suffering something. And who knows what he dealt with uh, on a spiritual level, as far as, as maybe some sin or not. But what did God tell Paul? My grace is sufficient for you, Paul. In your weakness, then am I made strong. And then we have Job, and it just seemed like the the book of Job seems almost like a catastrophe on so many levels. And yet, Job's faith proved that he was what God said he was. Look here's 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 let me let me close it up right here. Every believer is responsible to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You are responsible for your own sanctification obedience is our best teacher you want to have your faith strengthened you want to have your faith built up you want to endure obey god you want to be taught you want to grow to maturity obey god obedience will keep us from falling away it's no it's no accident that god put this passage about falling away immediately after uh making uh A proclamation that that you must move on to perfection. You must move on to spiritual maturity. And folks, every believer is responsible to examine himself to see if he's in the faith. Would would we be a people that are constantly examining our heart and we don't grow uh, to a point where we're just comfortable where we're at? I, I believe the things that we're seeing take place. We've gotten so comfortable, we don't know how to respond to adversity. We've been so prosperous in this country and we've had no problems at all, hardly whatsoever. And now we're starting to see things that change the way we live and things that are coming at us from all sides. And many of us don't know how to respond to this. Many of us are are, are failing uh, to say the least. And so I would say this, to the lost, repent and believe the Gospel. Repent and turn to Christ And to the saved, if you at all see in your heart unbelief wavering and causing you to fall away, repent and turn to the Father. Let's pray.